Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Hey everyone, welcome to Talk Nerdy. I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. This week, I want to specifically thank Brian Holden, Jeffrey Sewell, Chuck Pell, let's see, Richard Audie, might be Aud, A-U-D-E, I think it's Audie, and lastly, Thong Cha for supporting the podcast. If you want to help support the show and keep it 100% free to download and also you know, help me out a little to uh, improve these microphones and, and maybe eventually the laptop because, man, it's getting old. Um, all you have to do is go to carasantamaria.com and click through to the Patreon link. You can also go there directly by hitting up patreon.com slash talk nerdy. All right, guys, I am excited to welcome this week to the show the energy and environment reporter for the Austin American Statesman and author of the brand new book, Year of the Dunk, A Modest Defiance of Gravity. Here he is, Asher Price. So Asher, thank you so much for joining me in my humble home studio. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, I'm excited. So you are here actually um, right now in L.A., Promoting your book, right? Exactly. I uh, giving a reading and uh, and also seeing friends and, and cool. some family. And so this is the tail end of your trip. You're actually going straight to the airport from here. That's right. From here, I uh, shoot on down Highland to La Brea to La Cienega. <laughs> Boom. So right. Yep. That's the best way to go. Avoid the 405 at all costs. Um, so 
what uh what have you done so far you said you've hung out with some friends you've done some actual readings like at bookstores uh yeah i did a, a reading at the barnes and noble in santa monica oh, and fun. uh and i saw my aunt in down who lives near down down near long beach and um some friends of mine from high school and college are out on the west coast now and so i um and so i i saw them too yeah. So so just to back up a little bit so that people who are listening know, you currently live in Austin, right? That's right, yeah. And you're a reporter, an energy and environment reporter at the Austin American Statesman. Exactly. But are you from Texas? See, I want to know this because I'm a good old Texan girl. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's first of all, it's nice to meet a good old Texan girl here <laughs> in L.A. Um, yeah, so here's the short version of the long sorted history. Uh, I was born in LA, um, and uh, my parents had lived in LA in the 60s and 70s. Um, my dad had had been a law professor at UCLA, and in the early 80s, they moved on over to uh, New York City with me. I was three or four years old and my two older brothers. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in New York City um, uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, went to a prep school in New York. And um, and then, uh, speaking of Texas women, mm-hmm. uh, I <laughs> met my girlfriend, now my wife, freshman year of college, and uh, she was from Austin, born oh. and raised in Austin. And after school and after grad school, she wanted to move back to Texas. And um, her parents still live in Austin. And I was able to get a job at the Austin American Statesman. That was a little over 10 years ago now. And it's the only full-time job I've ever really had. And I really like the newspaper and my colleagues and editors. So I'm, I, and, I, and I love Austin, so I'm really happy there. Oh, great. So you enjoy being a staff reporter. Oh, yeah, I, I really do. I mean, I, I, um, you know, the newspaper um, has put a lot of emphasis on doing um, investigative work nice. and... Uh, and there's a lot of investigative work to be done in Texas, um, especially sure. on a kind of intersection of environment and politics. And so my day job is spending time doing a lot of that kind of work. So you went to a uh, university in in Yale. New York. Oh, you went to, you went to Yale. Okay, we went great. To Yale. That's where we met. And then you also went to grad school in New York? No. Um, my wife, Rebecca, um, she was my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. She... Uh, went to Oxford to study English Lit, cool. and I tagged along. I got into a master's program in something called comparative social policy, um, and uh, and so I did a master's degree in that in in Oxford. But in that and that's sort of about you know like comparing different welfare states, the welfare system in Scandinavia versus the U.S. or um, homeless policies and uh, or policing policies, that sort of thing. Gotcha. But anyway, so I, I I spent time in Oxford, and then I. You know, did a couple other odd things, but but then pretty quickly made my way down to made my way down to Austin. Nice. Did you study so for your under, so for your master's? You had this kind of interesting uh, yeah, yeah, the, program. What what fed into that? Did you study journalism? Was it poli sci? Uh, I was an English major in college. Oh, okay. Yeah, I um, and I I, I wasn't one of these kids who you know knew he wanted to be a, an academic or something. In mm-hmm. fact, I knew I didn't want to be. <laughs> I just I liked. Uh, you know, reading good books, nice. and uh, and the faculty was really good. So, I that's how I ended up being an English major. And then there was a College Daily newspaper, and I I worked a little bit on the College Daily. I wrote some stories for it, but I was never, 
I was never like a full-throated, uh, you know, staff or editor for the College Daily. Mm-hmm. I did kind of summer, you know, newspaper jobs, newspaper reporting jobs. One of my first jobs was working for a, um, uh, a newspaper called The Forward in New York City, which was an old school Yiddish paper that, you know, now had an English edition. And so my job that summer was doing things like writing obituaries of old lefty union organizers. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Did, so you really kind of went through the ranks. Um, it, it's interesting because I feel like journalism and in some ways too, the the field that I'm, I'm sort of in a weird intersection of journalism and production kind of television work. These are two worlds where you don't have to have academically studied what you do to be very good at what you do. I know a lot of journalists and I know a lot of producers and directors who are by the book academics. And I know a whole lot of them who studied either something in a totally different field or never even went to college and just learned the ropes in the field. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think for the kind of work we're doing, Mm -hmm. one of the really important things is to be able to communicate. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, you want to get things right, um, but you also want to be able to communicate them clearly. And so, um, on the getting things right part, you know, it's important to figure out who, who to talk to and what to talk to them about and, and write down or broadcast what they're saying accurately. Yeah. Um, but it's its own kind of skill to be able to communicate those things clearly as well and to be able to, uh, you know, write or talk about them in a way that for my purposes and a general audience can understand. Oh, for sure. I think that's really important. And it's, it's an interesting arena because we're going to get to the book in a second. I'm really intrigued by this book because it's sort of one part memoir, one part SciComm, which is interesting to me. So you work as a full-time staff reporter, pure, clean journalism. You do investigative work, but you focus uh, specifically on energy and environment, which is, as we know, and you mentioned earlier, especially um, important in a place like Texas, in a rich oil, you know, place where they actually do a lot of great clean and green energy, but they also are really, really entrenched in kind of traditional fossil fuel industry also. Sure. Um, so, so that's an interesting area in and of itself. The book that you wrote, however, and I'll just give it a plug right here off the top, A Year of the Dunk, A Modest Defiance of Gravity. Um, and mm-hmm. we'll talk all about what it's about because that's really intriguing. Um, is has a a little bit of science communication thrown in. And lately I've been really intrigued having these conversations. I just said intrigue like three times. Um, Having these conversations (laughs) with either traditional journalists or people that we consider to be more science communicators about the differences, about how they support each other, but about how, um, how there kind of might need to be a distinction between the two. And I'm interested to hear your take on this. I worked at HuffPost as the the science reporter back when science was atrocious there. I helped them build a science page. I mean, science is still atrocious there. But at least now there's a page that's kind of a, a, a place for science. Uh-huh. So it's not just on the health pages with like the Deepak Chopra and all the woo and all the <laughs> bullshit. We tried to build a real science page that had a legitimate home for science. Um, successful or not, I mean, I'm not there anymore and it's hard for me to... But at the time... I was trying to affect change from inside the system. And so, but I'm a science communicator first and foremost. I kind of 
tried out the journalism. I sometimes work as a journalist. I do yeah. a local show here as a journalist, uh, like more legitimately. But it's hard to go back and forth because with SciComm, oftentimes what I find is that a big part of what you're doing is advocacy. You're trying to advocate for the scientific process and for more science in sort of the public. And sometimes when you do advocacy work as a writer, as an on-air personality, whatever, the whole journalistic side of things kind of goes out the window. I think you're getting at a lot of really interesting things. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are things that, you know, I grapple with in my work as a reporter. Um, I, so I think one way of thinking about, you know, so a conventional American way of thinking about journalism is kind of he said, she said stories. Mm. Um, and that you have to give you know, both sides equal weight. Mm -hmm. But I think you run into a problem if, you know, one person is saying the sky outside is blue and the other person says it's raining and then the sky outside is actually blue. So how is a reporter, as a communicator, um, as a journalist, mm -hmm. do you um, signal to the reader that, well, actually the sky outside is blue and, and the person who's saying the sky is blue is 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 right. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, there's objective truths in the world, um, and so uh, you know, in my work, I'm willing to say when it's appropriate, uh, and my editors are fine with it. You know, this person says the sky is blue. This says this person says the sky is rainy. The National Weather Service reports that the sky was blue. Yeah, that's a good. You know, and then re and then readers can and readers can can. It, but it's important that the that the reporter. Goes to that is 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 willing to to point that out. Mm -hmm. um, this came up recently in Texas uh, about the relationship between um, things related to fracking operations and earthquakes in Texas, and to what degree uh, you know to what degree is there a relationship? And uh, and you know you had policymakers even as even as scientists in other states, including Oklahoma. Were recognizing some relationship. You had important policymakers in Texas who were unwilling to um, uh, acknowledge that there might be a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just, it's my job as a reporter to say, well, this person says that there isn't a relationship with these studies uh, that are peer reviewed and so forth. Uh, say there is. Yeah. Um, and then it gets complicated, I find, when we're talking about topics that there's less science to support the opinion, but the opinion itself is fundamental to the scientific process. So one of the things that I've run up against or that I historically ran up against when I was working in a more traditional journalistic capacity was animal studies. So any scientist, if you ask them if animal research is necessary, they'll say 100%. It's the only way we know what we know. And it's something that we even have to politically be careful about with our lab. Like a, most research facilities won't let reporters in to see the animals. They definitely don't publish pictures of the animals. And, they, and it's mostly because there are activists on the other side who um, they're afraid will potentially do something that could be damaging to the research. 
So intrinsic in the studies is this is how they figured out that this vaccine works or this is how they figured out that, you know, this is what's happening in a human brain because they were able to do these studies on, on a primate brain or whatever. The problem comes in when you're trying to communicate science or when you're trying to do reporting and you want to talk about something like that, you, you trip over yourself when you're questioning, can I say that this is right? Can I say that this is necessary? Or do I have to say, well, the scientific community says X, activists say X, you decide. Uh-huh. And I that's so yeah. frustrating for me. It's the same thing with like GMOs. It's the same thing with, with um, uh, climate change. And sometimes it's more clear cut than other times, which is why I always liked science communication better than traditional puristic journalism. I think because for me, it's it unleashes me to be able to put a little bit of personal perspective in it, which you really can't do when you are trying to stick to, you know, by, by the book journalism. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about whether my colleagues who write about higher education, mm -hmm. higher education policy or um, transportation, if they're um, um, at a disadvantage in this regard, um, yeah. I, I mean, I think that that in general there's this there's this problem of you know that facts are often inconvenient, and and so how to how do you fold them into a story, and how do you go that extra mile to pointing out that there exist these facts in mm -hmm. the world. Um, I mean, I think my, my colleagues at the, at the Statesman do a great job along, along those lines. Um, uh, but I, so I'm not sure whether I have more or less freedom in my job than, than they Interesting. do. Interesting, yeah. And, and you know, this is not why, but this is an interesting aspect too traditional reporting i've i've met you know quite a few journalists who do traditional they're they're on staff they're not freelance so they only work for one outlet and they do what we think of as traditional reporting as their day job but then they might write a book on the side and when you go to write that book it, like all bets are off you know you'll use all of the skills that you've acquired and you'll obviously want to maintain journalistic integrity as you write the book but you can kind of do whatever you want in a book yeah i mean there's a lot more freedom mm -hmm. there's a lot more freedom as a writer stylistically i mm -hmm. mean i i don't write about myself in the pages of the austin american statesman <laughs> yeah. i write a, i'm a main character of this book year of the dunk um and uh but i also um i can stretch my legs out a little bit also with the with the reporting i'm doing with the both with the people i'm talking to but but also my willingness or opportunity to report on things that I that just don't come up in my in my daily beat. Gotcha. Yeah. So you get to write about something that you never would have kind of had the, I guess, allowance from the editors to be able to write about because that's somebody else's beat. Yeah. I mean, nobody really has the dunking beat at the, <laughs> at the newspaper. Um, but sports even, just doing kind of the science of sports yeah, is there's very no, interesting. Right. And there's no science of sports beat mm -hmm. at the at the paper Most so papers uh, don't even have a science beat anymore right i i mean we actually don't 
technically have a science speed. Yeah, lots of times they're kind of there. There might be an energy and environment, so there's science within that. There might be a health beat, right? There um, is that. Yeah. yeah, or kind of a weather. Sometimes that fits in something bigger like environment. Yeah. Um, but there are certain pure science stories, like when there's a great physics story, or something that that are kind of divvied up. Like, do you cover those? Occasionally, I mean, there was just you know, obviously Austin is home to a great research university, mm-hmm. University of Texas. And, um, you know, some UT researchers, uh, astronomers were just involved in the um, detection of Kepler-452b, this, you know, Goldilocks planet that's, I think, 1,400 light years away, Mm -hmm. um, which is really far. (laughs) It It takes eight minutes for light to come from the sun to our planet, right? So 1,400 light years, that's really far away. It's really far. Um, It's mind-blowing bogglingly far and it's one of those stories that the i think the media loves to report as being a little more salacious than it is it's a fucking phenomenal (laughs) finding don't get me wrong it's a phenomenal finding but as more and more information rolls in i think more and more researchers and i'm actually hoping to have one on the show within the next couple of weeks are saying like man it's not really like earth like we (laughs) want to say it's just we don't it's hard right well who knows i mean yes right it's a it's hard to tell. I but think. it does have some of those parameters that we're looking for as these kind of life candidate planets. Right, right. Um, but, but anyway, it, it, it doesn't naturally, you know, we get a press release about that. It doesn't naturally fall. It's not an environmental story. True. It's yeah. not a health story. I mean, I ended up writing about it happily. I've, I'm, I, you know, fondly remember 10th grade high school astronomy. But uh, <laughs> I... Uh, that that's exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. I mean, th- we don't have a science reporter per se, so it, it, yeah. it, it gets divvied up. Were you assigned to that, or did you kind of volunteer and say, oh, I was I, a, uh, this is a fun story? I was I assigned to that. that. You I mean, were just assigned to it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. I like that, too, about traditional journalism, because I think that that takes some of the personal emotion out of the stories. Like, again, it's something I'm bad at, because I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I want to write about this. This matters to me, well, but... Uh, I mean, I'd say the the important. major the majority of my stories I tell my editor we ought to write about this or that, um, and that's you, you do pitch. Yeah, yeah, I pitch exactly. I mean, in 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 the paper wants it to be that way because the expertise on various issues has been delegated around the paper. Sure, you, you know, don't want so, somebody who's like you know a food reporter writing about right and my discoveries. exactly. My editor also doesn't want to be. He 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 trusts his, you know, his group of five or six reporters, his mm-hmm. beat reporters, to to determine these things. Uh, so you know, I have conversation with him about whether sure. such and such a thing ought to be in the newspaper. Is it a metro story? Is it a you know? Is it an A one story? These sorts of things. But I definitely think there is an importance to the traditional system of saying, you know what, you're writing this. You know, once in a blue moon, there's going to be a story and it's like, who wants it? And everybody's like, I don't know. And it's like, well, you're getting it. So you got to do your research and you got to report on it cleanly and you got to learn shit because maybe you didn't already know the outcome. The statesman, you know, uh, pays my bills. So um, and I I, whatever they meaning the the editorial staff would like me to write about. I mean, I'm 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 grateful for having a newspaper job. And have they been supportive in the um, <clears throat> in the process of writing and publishing a book and going and promoting it? Extremely. That's I awesome. mean, they 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 were kind enough, first of all, to give me leave for seven months to to write the book, and you know, my hats off to my colleagues who had to take up the slack when I was gone at the at the newspaper. Yeah, and um, and I even did some of the working out 
of of the book involved with the book. I mean, the book's about my efforts at age 34, 35 to try to dunk a basketball for the first time. So it involved a lot of working out and uh, jumping and stuff. And some of that was done in the gym at the Statesman, which is called the press room. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah. I love that. That's really cool to see those things come together. So, And I also think that that's obviously uh, a perfect segue to really talk about what this book is about and how you were able to flex some of those um, some of those new muscles, I think. is. But this is not your first book, right? No. I, I wrote a book with another journalist, Kate Galbraith, who's actually now a reporter up in the Bay Area and, and also writes about um, stuff in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a reporter in, in Texas, and she and I teamed up to write a book about uh, pioneers in and the politics involved with uh, wind power in Texas. Hmm, interesting. Did you find that after writing that book, I mean, did you do a lot of press around that? Did you have to pull that kind of pundit role and, and go on some news shows and, and give them your spiel? You know, I think partly uh, it was through an academic press. And uh, I mean, it's a it's an interesting story about how these you know, these, how, how wind power moved from kind of being a kind of hippie-ish alternative Mm -hmm. thing to big business in Texas and, and some of the ironies that are involved with an oil and gas state and a kind of free market minded state doing a, a renewable wind energy push. And you covered some big political players in the book. That's right. Yeah. George W. Bush is, is a player in it. Ann Richards, Mm -hmm. um, Ken Lay, uh, is a character in the book, you know, because he was trying to, you know, get Enron in on on mm-hmm. some of the Windrush. Um, but no, we I think we we were kind of um, this is a completely different experience. That that was a sort of um, uh, more let's say a quieter book in the sense that it, it it we didn't we didn't press all that. We got a you know a great review by the AP actually, um, but we didn't sort of sell ourselves around to try to sure. promote it outside of Texas, the regional book. Um, and now, you know, this is a thrilling experience for me, you know, with a big trade publication, uh, publishing house, Crown, and and going around to different bits of the country to, to talk about the book. And, and, and so it's on. cool because it seems like it's more tr- um, more straight promotion like you get to go you get to read excerpts you get to do book signings and things like that you're not having to go on fox news because it's not a political book you're not having to go on fox news and give a spiel and oh my god that's the worst it's the worst like being yes uh, but that, that having been said if fox news wants to have me on i'm, ha- I'm happy to talk about the book wherever <laughs> true okay any any fox news producers who are listening um asher would love to promote the book um but at least you don't have to get all pundity. It's I'm telling you, it's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I'll not fun at all. <laughs> and so yes, let's let's talk about this book. It is obviously not a political book, but it's a book that is very personal to you. You're and okay. So you mentioned before this is about your kind of effort of trying to dunk a basketball. Lifelong dream, I'm assuming, since you were a kid. Well, I uh, yeah, I mean, it, I think a lot of people. Um, fantasize about dunking a basketball um and very few of us ever 
actually do it or even try to do it. Well, in like a regulation size goal. Yeah. I think right. lots of little kids dunk basketballs in like true. a tiny backyard. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's right. And But that kind of gulf between what we daydream about and what we're really capable of, whether mm. it's dunking a basketball or, uh, you know, you might wonder about yourself whether you would have been a, uh, I don't know, a rocket scientist mm -hmm. or... Um, a painter or whatever, um, you know, we all have these daydreams. And for me, the fantasy was about whether I could dunk a basketball. And it was a fantasy, um, you know, I, I trace back to uh, 1986, uh, which was the slam dunk, that year, the slam dunk um, competition. Uh, the finalists were Dominique Wilkins, the six foot, eight inch um, amazing dunker from the Atlanta Hawks, known as the human highlight film. Mm -hmm. And his rookie teammate, Spud Webb, who was five foot six inches. No. Yeah. <laughs> and he was he was making the league minimum uh for because he was a rookie, uh, which was seventy thousand dollars. Yeah. And this nineteen eighty six slam dunk competition was in in Dallas. Um that was where All Star Weekend was that year. And Spud Webb was from Dallas. And um, in fact, three or four of his um, brothers and sisters and his parents um, wanted to come to the dunk competition. And Spud Webb knew one of the scalpers and bought tickets for them to come <laughs> sit in the stands at Reunion Arena and to watch the, the dunk competition. And it's one of my earliest memories. I was seven years old, six or seven years old, 1986. And, um, and there was Spud Webb, who really wasn't that much taller than I was. At the time. At the time. How funny. Throwing down these amazing dunks where he would, you know, his, his hands were too small to palm the ball. So he had to, you know, bounce it high off the floor and catch it in midair and throw oh it down God. or throw it off the backboard. And, and, um, and so that kind of, cap, cap, I remember that capturing my imagination, the way that when you're six or seven, certain things kind of burn in your memory. Mm -hmm. um, and so like Billy Idol and the White Wedding music video, which my <laughs> older brothers watched all the time on MTV, like that was something I remember from that period too. Um, and so growing up, I, I was never much of an athlete. I never really, I never made any effort to get in, you know, super shape and, see how high I could jump. So, and you um, never, did you play in any sports teams? I played ultimate frisbee. Sure. <laughs> um, which, you know, is, it has its, its own athleticism, athletic. but it's, it's, there was no weightlifting involved. There was no kind of But when did you play that? that That's like a college game, isn't I, it? So I played that a bit in high school and then in college. High yeah. school, college. Okay. And cool. I even played, I even played after college a little bit too. See, I always thought that ultimate frisbee like required that you test positive for, uh, for cannabis. Like, <laughs> that's like a rule to be able to play ultimate frisbee. <laughs> I'm not, I, I wonder how cannabis would affect jumping ability actually. <laughs> Probably not. Well, it's definitely, I think a uh, performance not enhancing. What's the opposite of enhancing? Um, Diminishing. Diminishing. Yeah, yeah. It's a performance diminishing yeah, drug. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, so you're six or seven. You're the the spark is there. Yeah. But right. obviously, it doesn't push you too much because right. all through your childhood, <laughs> you're like mad. Yeah, I was one of those guys. I grew books. up in I grew up in 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 Manhattan, and you know, all these buildings have awnings coming out, you know, with doormen. Mm -hmm. And I remember going 
I remember going around the streets of Manhattan in sort of happy-go-lucky trying to hit awnings, you know, mm-hmm. jump and hit awnings. But I never really tried to reach the the upper ones. Um, and you're not short. I mean, no, that's I'm not the thing. short. Yeah. They can't see you, the that's people right. who are listening right. right now. That's you're right. You're over six feet, right? I'm eight feet tall. <laughs> no, well, I'm. Why I'm is this so <laughs> difficult for you? Astrid? I'm six two and a half. Okay, so, so, so you're a tall guy, but you're still not anywhere close to what we think of as traditional NBA players. Right, exactly. Um, I, 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 I call myself vaguely tall. You're pretty mm-hmm. tall. I'm pretty I would tall. Say you're pretty tall, but you're not freakishly tall. Yes, that's right. I'm not freakishly <laughs> tall. Yeah, you I, are. You are almost a full foot taller. I'm five three, so you are yeah eleven and a half inches taller than me. I, I was getting into my mid-30s, and um, I was wondering, like I think a lot of people wonder, about what kind of talent they've left on the table. Mm. You know, what what abilities do we have lurking in our bones that we've never really, you know, taken out for a spin? Yeah, like I really, really want to learn how to play guitar. And I'm, you know, I'm 31. I'll be 32 this year. And yeah. I'm like, am I too old? Will right. I be able to, I mean, will it just be too hard to be Exactly. Worth it? These are the kinds of, exactly. These are the kinds of questions. And, and it could turn out that you're a, a guitar genius. It could turn out that I totally suck. It, that's totally <laughs> possible. Um, so, but, you know, there's a whole physical element. Unlike playing guitar, I mean, my, you know, my flexibility, not that I ever was so flexible, is declining. Uh, you know, there are various things. My, my body is breaking down in various ways. And so it felt like the window for trying to dunk a basketball to see if I had this talent was was closing. Sure. Yeah, you want to maximize your, you know, your joints, your muscles, all of those things and that's not going to as we know. Right. It's not going to become easier. Yeah, we're not on an upswing, right? Yeah, now. right. Exactly. <laughs> so, the interesting thing is that during this kind of journey, this chronicle of your journey, you do cover a lot of history and you cover actually quite a bit of science, which this is I think really why I was so excited to have you on the podcast. You were introduced to me by an old, not old, he's actually quite young, <laughs> but by a previous producer um, on on a show that I worked on for quite some time. And I guess you said that you know him through his brother. Um, and when he first told me, okay, I have this friend and he wrote this book and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what does that have to do with <laughs> what I do? And then I realized, you know what? There's this whole area of science and sports that I never touch on on my podcast. My podcast is a science podcast. You are the first person, and we are on episode, what episode are we on? Like 68 or something (laughs) crazy like that? Let me look, actually, so I'm not misquoting. Um, We are going to be the episode that you air. Oh, my God, SoundCloud, would you load already? Mm -hmm. Um, We're on episode 73. You'll be number 73, and I've never once even... So I'm the inaugural sports science person. Yes, I've never Uh once even tackled sports. It's crazy to me. So I'm really excited to do it in this way because it's sort of snuck in underneath some other cool stuff. Uh I'm just not. Are you a sports guy? I mean, I like watching sports. You do. You're yeah, like I mean, really... there are certain my my wife and I, I should say, like watching sports together. I mean, it's uh, we love watching football, soccer, basketball. Is in that order? Uh mm, it depends. You live in Texas. <laughs> it so depends like... on the season. I'd say. Okay, got you. You like whatever's on. <laughs> me in the during the fall. My wife Rebecca is, you know, on Saturdays she's 
she's got her UT Longhorns jersey on, and on Sunday she got her she's got her Dallas Cowboys jersey on. Sure, it's very. You guys are so Texas, <laughs> and she's she's a character in the book. Actually, she she um, grew up a huge Michael Jordan fan. Nice, uh, and so and she has a brother who is a dunker, um, and so. How tall is he? He's six seven. Gotcha. So he's got a little edge on you. He's got a little edge. Every inch counts. Are you guys um, Mavs fans? No. Interesting. We're, we're. I mean, I grew up a Knicks fan, uh. and now we're Spurs fans. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I forgot. You're south. So my family is crazy about the Mavericks. They're uh-huh. like, you know, season tickets going all the time, because we grew up in Dallas, uh-huh. uh, and they have a Nash jersey from back the first time right. he was on, like signed in the in the room with the pool table. It's pretty crazy. So well you'll appreciate this. Her 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 brother Ben um played pro ball, second division pro ball in Germany for a year, uh, and went up against Dirk Nowitzki when Dirk was seventeen years old. Hilarious. And, and did um, Dirk just crush him? Well Ben <laughs> Ben tells a story about um about shooting a three over Dirk, getting it. That's awesome. You know? And then um, and then he tells the story about how later in the game, Dirk was going one-on-one basically against him on a fast break, I think, and and just dunked it in Ben's face. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and, and Ben writes about how, uh, Ben has talked about how, how fast it all happened. Like, uh, you well, know, this, the one thing he was struck by was the speed of the game at that, at, even at that level. I could definitely see that. I mean, that's the one thing. I am not a sports person at all. My go-to response back on the show, actually, Take Part Live, that I worked on with Al. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, Puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Alex, um, the, the producer who put us in touch, my go-to response anytime anybody mentioned sports on air was, what is sport? Like, I'm just so out of <laughs> So you mood. weren't into the Mavs yourself. I, you know what? I wasn't so much, and this is also my my father and his family, so I was like already out of the house and didn't really spend much time with them. But 
I grew up when I was in high school, I was a cheerleader. You know, mm -hmm. I was like the captain of the cheerleader. It was like crazy. It's totally anti-type for me. And so I was forced to go to every football game and every and and this is Plano, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas. It's a big town. People know. Five A schools, very competitive, oh, yeah. good sports teams. And watch Friday Night Lights. That was my life. And I hated it. <laughs> I was so anti. I love cheerleading because I love doing the the real cheerleading competitions. Uh -huh, like, and the I tumbling like, and all yes, that stuff. Yes, all that. The yeah. tumbling, the the the, um, the stunting. Yeah. yeah, and I loved the sport for the sport itself. It's just another aspect of the sport is that you have to like shake your pom-poms, which uh -huh. I hated. Anyway, that being said, I will say that as much as I'm like, what is sport? And really, really do not enjoy football. Baseball growing up was a pastime for me. A cousin of mine played Major League Baseball, which was really exciting for the whole family. His little brother was uh, starting at UT wow. they were, they're just, as a freshman. Like they were a very cool baseball family. So I enjoyed the atmosphere of a live baseball game, being there in person with the hot dogs and the hanging out and the playing behind the bleachers. And I also will say, even to this day, I'll watch a basketball playoff game and I'll really enjoy it. This is getting back to what you're saying because it's so fast. I find basketball really intriguing because it keeps my attention. Some sports like soccer, I can't handle soccer. I can't handle golf. I get they're too freaking slow. Hockey, low scoring sports are very hard for uh -huh. me. But basketball, it's like, now he's got it. Now he's got it. What's going on now? It just keeps your attention, for me at least, a little bit more. And they dunk. And they right? dunk, I mean, right? Let's, I let's think, talk about I that. I think we can talk yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> one of the one of the things that, you know, the whole the project started off for me as a lark, like Okay, I'm 34. Can I dunk a basketball? I, you know, met with a friend at a court and, you know, had these pathetic early attempts. And <laughs> um, and then the more I thought about the dunk uh, and basketball, the more I thought there might be something to write about. Both because the dunk is a very American thing. It's a it, basketball is very American. It's uniquely American. It's originally American. It has spread though, right? It has spread. Yeah, yeah. of course. It's a world. It's a global sport now, thanks oh, yeah, to the great like, dunker Michael Jordan. And it's in the Olympics. It's now. in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, but the dunk, you know, the dunk works as a metaphor for things about upward mobility, and you have. Uh, it's a way of getting it. You know, in these in these memoirs of basketball players the dunk is like an important rite of passage sure. that often is a ticket out of poverty and yeah, uh, that's i mean that's that a theme thing. with um a lot of sports especially that we think of now where you know you look at basketball players in the 70s and 80s they look very different than basketball players look now it's a it's a predominantly minority uh played sport football too i think at this point and you do hear and it's so like just empowering you hear these stories of kids growing up in compton kids growing up in the inner city and it yeah. really is kind of their only way out charles barkley in his autobiography outrageous uh <laughs> he he tells the story about growing up in leeds alabama and how he um he used to they had a three foot tall chain link fence around his house and he would just jump back and forth for a couple hours at a time to build up his leg muscles because he wanted to dunk so badly and he writes quite explicitly about how the first time he dunked it was the first time he thought maybe i can get out of leads yeah um but i the the there was all kinds of other things to you know to write about 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 um the physics of of the dunk about biomechanics and about you know why humans actually are 
quite lousy jumpers. Oh, yeah, uh, compared to other animals. Compared to other animals. Um, you know, evolutionarily, why that's the case. And why, why is that the case? Why can't we really jump? Well, I guess one way of thinking about it positively <laughs> is that we're fantastic long-distance runners. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I've so, read that quite a few times. Right. We're, not the, we're not amazing at sprinting. Like some, no, we're, we're actually pretty bad. Yeah, like some people, obviously, like, like the Olympic sprinters are yeah. pretty okay, but in general, we're not good at running away from predators. Let me ask you a question. Who would win a 25-meter dash? You or Killer the dog? Oh, your, killer your is dog. very so people who are listening they probably already know but killer is very small and he's really lazy <laughs> okay all right all right well most dogs would beat you in would. a 25 meter dash so? he probably would actually when i'm <laughs> when i'm hiking with him he can run off and it scares the shit out of me because i'm like where did he go well well the 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 we we were selected um so by the way big disclaimer here i mean i've already talked about this but i'm not a scientist by training Okay. Yeah, and I All think right. that's why this is so fast. I was actually about to ask you, like, how much, how frustrating or exciting or all these mixes of emotions was it for you to start writing about something and requiring that you be a science journalist with a broad beat, something that you probably uh -huh. haven't done before. I thought it was terrific. I mean, for example, with this, with this, uh, this evolution of our running ability mm -hmm. and our 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 jumping ability. I mean. Um, you know, I, one of the great things about being a reporter is that you get to, you get to pick up a phone and talk to people. So I, I, I who you normally wouldn't speak with. So I, I called, um, uh, uh, Dan Lieberman, who's a, um, evolutionary biologist at, at Harvard mm -hmm. and who writes a lot about this issue. And he was kind enough to, to talk with me a little bit about this. I mean, I also read, you know, stuff he had written about it. Um, but um, to kind of, you know, reduce things a bit, basically, we were selected for our, our long-distance running ability um, as a way to hunt down prey. Uh, yeah. You know, this is back a long time ago, before we really even had projectiles, before we had spears, we would, you know, chase after antelope and the like. And, and so, just wear them out. And just wear them out, and then, like, <laughs> brain them or... Jesus. Whatever we did, strangle them. <laughs> I, I I don't know, but we did we 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 it was a hand to hand combat, right? I mean, but the so it's less about our ability to run away from other predators. It's about our ability to be the predator. That's my understanding. It's, yeah, is, that makes and, more and, sense and, too. And, and so that you know that we were selected for our ability to 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 perspire for things involving you know amount of hair on our body, mm -hmm. but our uh, all these things that went to long distance running ability, and when you're selected for you, you know, watching the Olympics, you can't be both a great marathon runner and a great hundred meter dash yeah. runner. So you're you're giving up certain things in favor of others, really. Um, you have, I mean, even the way you eat is different. You know, marathon runners just like load up on on carbs because they need uh, before the runs, they need all of this like early energy and then late energy, and they have to like like have a different diet than somebody who's a sprinter. Right, exactly. So, but, you know, our chimp predecessors, they had hops. They were jumping from tree to tree. Oh, for sure. And, uh, uh, and so we gave up or we were selected for um, these, other, uh, these other sorts of things that gave us advantages as we kind of climbed down from the trees and mm -hmm. started 
chasing after prey that then gave us other advantages with you know more protein rich diets and stuff and like that. And then of course our brains grew and we were able to you know go like eh, I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to have to do this anymore. I'll just throw an object at it. Right, right. <laughs> so when I when I am trying to dunk a basketball in a way I'm going against not only whatever my own personal limitations are. I mean, you know, I I my my um my vertical jump was pretty pathetic at the start of all this. Um, but I'm also going against our sort of species-wide evolutionary uh, direction. Um, so that's a th there were a bunch of different things to get into science-wise. That was you know that was something. But I also found myself getting fascinated by what uh, you know how other species jump. So. One of the fun things to do, one of the again, one of the fun things about being a reporter and working on this book was going to Cambridge, England, and mm -hmm. meeting with a, an entomologist there uh, who studies the highest jumping insects in the world. And are they better than, like pound for pound, are they better than the highest jumping non-insect animal? Well, let me let me put it this way: mm -hmm. um, there's an insect called the frog hopper. Okay, and um, it. One thing it does, it has these velcro, um, velcro-like pads, and it is it, it's kind of getting ready to spring up. It 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 locks its its legs in place, sort of building up its potential energy. And uh, these are tiny, you know, insects yeah. found in uh, in England, in Canada. Other parts of the Commonwealth, <laughs> 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 you know, sort of northern climes, um, and uh, and uh, if if we had the jumping ability of a frog hopper, which is a slightly ridiculous statement in itself because they're a completely different kind of animal than we are, <laughs> uh -huh. um, we could jump over the St. Louis Arch. No, that's insane. <laughs> so, like, I love uh, hearing stories like that about insects. We forget they even exist half the time, even though their biomass is like, you know, so yeah. much more than everything else in the world, and there's they've got so much more biodiversity. Um, but it's so crazy when you actually compare like our ability to an insect's ability. Like ants can carry however much uh, of their yeah. own body weight, right. and so these frog hoppers could. That's crazy. Yeah. But you just remember, we're much smarter than they are. We are much smarter. <laughs> that's true. And we probably have much longer lives. Yeah, I'll give you that's that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> frog hopper uh, High bug. five I'm, being human. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking up the frog hopper right now. There's a Nat Geo yeah. article about he, it. Yeah. I, I want to see pictures. But there's a guy named Malcolm Burroughs. Oh, he's actually who's, quoted right yeah, in so this he, article. I went to his office. There's a whole scene with him. And, and interestingly, he had been a... Uh, like a postdoc in in Oregon mm -hmm. in the 1960s, and he remembered. He told me he remembered watching Dick Fosbury, um, who was this trailblazing high jumper, um, uh, uh, do the high jump in mm -hmm. the 60s. Dick Fosbury um, started the style of high jumping called the Fosbury flop, where you jump sort of backwards over the over the uh, over the bar. Yeah, okay, that's how everybody does it. That's now. how everybody yeah. does it now. And and there's a whole interesting thing there about sort of lifting your your center of gravity without necessarily having your whole body over the bar at the same time. So yeah, cuz you almost do this curvature thing where you like undulate over Exactly. The bar. And he Dick Fosbury had no idea what he was doing. He he was a mediocre um you know, ninth grade 
high jumper and he was about to quit the high jumping team at his team in Medford, Oregon. And he went to a, he went to a track meet and he started, every, so everybody else was doing what was called the Western roll where they ran up, went belly facing the bar, you know, face uh-huh. down over the bar, one leg and then the other. Almost like diving over it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he started leaning backwards and in this one meet was able to was able to increase his personal best by six inches. Wow. And everyone's like, what the hell is he doing? I bet you they were all like, he's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think I think they allowed. just were sort of astonished, and he was astonished himself. And then, you know, whatever it was, five or six years after that, I, I think he was he won the Olympics with it. <sighs> and, insane. And, you know, that goes back to the difference between us and insects and something I kind of think about in the book is the frog hopper is not going to think creatively mm-hmm. about how it can improve. Yeah, um, it's almost, um, it's not thinking at all. I mean, it right. may be thinking and right. with its, they don't even have brains, they have like nuclei of cells, yeah. but it's doing what it in some ways is kind of genetically programmed to do. Right, right. And and here's a human who who's, you know, in through creativity, through human creativity is improving trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found I found myself thinking for a while: well, is there is there like something I could be doing to dunk a basketball that other people haven't thought of? Um, and then in, you were like, "Wait, people have been doing this for yeah, a really right, long time. right, exactly." There's been a lot of human ingenuity about this, and they haven't figured out, uh, you know, a new way to lift their bodies up to the up to the rim. Except maybe a trampoline. Except maybe a trampoline. That's right, or a ladder. Did you try at the beginning with a springboard or a trampoline just so that you could get the feel of what it's like to dunk a basketball and the feel of what it's like to land on your ankles? No. You know, after you dunk a basketball? No, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I dunked on shorter rims to, oh, is sure. a way to okay. kind of build my way up. Yeah, that um, makes sense. I had a couple different sort of gurus who were, who were testing me. And and uh, and helping me along, there was there was a crew at a place called the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, they put me through all kinds of flexibility tests and gotcha. and sort of put together a regimen for me. So they were like PT, like physical. Yeah, they were like they were yeah they were like physical therapists yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, uh, and then there was also a guy named Charles Austin who runs a gym near Austin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a town called San Marcos. And um, Charles Austin won the gold medal in the high jump in the 1996 Olympics. Cool. It's seven feet, 10 inches. He, he hoisted himself over the height of your, of your door. Yeah, that's insane to me. Uh, so it's that crazy. is like even more, it's funny because the dunk is like this quintessential, you've been talking about, I mean, it's the yeah. goal of the entire book. Right. And it's this kind of, I guess, analogy for American upward mobility. But that's just your hand that has to make. Yeah. And how high is it though? It's really high. The, the, oh, that's a good question. The rim is ten feet tall. Yeah, that's and you have thing. to get your hand, as you said, over that. So um, Charles yes. Austin anyway put me through, you know, my paces and and all kinds of exercises to kind of build my ups. Did you learn how to high jump? I didn't learn how to high jump. I did that not learn how to high jump. To me. Like you could really injure yourself if you don't know what you're doing. Well, there's also there's actually a, a, one one way of describing the Fosbury's um, 
you know, breakthrough is that it was about that time in the early 60s that big high jump mats started coming into vogue. Before that, they would land on sawdust. Oh, yeah. So there's no way. Yeah. So you could you could think of the history and science of it that way, that it was in kind of dovetailed with this. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to land on the back of your neck. Yeah. That's how they land. Right. Is that like kind of their shoulder blade area? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You couldn't do that on sawdust. (laughs) That would be horrifying. Yeah. Wow. So so you're you're going through the the motions. You're working with all these amazing trainers, physiologists really. You're you're learning about your both the physical limitations, the forces that you know calculating that what angle do you have to right. take off from your ankles? Um and also what you know what what's going on in your muscles with your bones with your fast tendons. twitch and slow twitch muscles yes. and to what extent can we you know, transform our bodies that way. And that how your brain actually controls those muscles, um, kind of the neural signals within your muscles. Right. How the, um, <clears throat> how the muscles shorten down and all of the little uh, scaffoldings and proteins that are involved in that. I used to know what they're all called. I should know what they're <laughs> all called. Um, so you're learning all of this. At the same time, you're really putting yourself through the ringer physically. Yeah. Did, did you ever go like, why the am i doing this? <laughs> i actually thought that quite a lot yeah i mean i i i don't think i would have done it if a publisher hadn't taken the idea seriously and was willing to pay me to write the book because that does bind you in a way because that's yeah. how i think some people don't realize or maybe they do but that's how book brain fog insomnia moodiness weight gain maybe you think they're just part of getting older but mini health understands that for women over 40 they can all connect to menopause it's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience not just hot flashes MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply publishing works it now and kind of has for a long time is you get an advance right they pay exactly. you up front to yeah write i this mean book. i i um i was i'm lucky enough to have been you know commissioned as it were mm-hmm. in a way to write this book uh, so you know you, you write was... a book proposal and then um uh, my agent my great agent david halpern shops the the proposal around and a publishing house is willing to you know take on the project uh, and so then once you're in once you're once you're in that situation, uh, you know, what I said began as a lark really seemed real. And and mm-hmm. and uh, and one thing I was struck by throughout the project was how uh, how earnestly other people took it. Sure. I mean, I said earlier, you know, I would 
email or in, and speak to Dan Lieberman or or Malcolm Burroughs or uh, I, you know, um, corresponded with Steve Vogel, who's a who's a um, scientist down at Duke, mm-hmm. and a lot of other other people. And you know, my email said, or when I picked up the phone, I said, "I'm a journalist in Texas. I'm working on a book about how to dunk a basketball. Can we talk?" Mm-hmm. And you know, most people in their right minds might say, "No, I'm sorry, I'm I'm, a bit I'm busy. busy." Right? <laughs> but these people were in- incredibly generous with their time, and and uh, it, which I think also, by the way, gets it. It, issues of science and communication about, you know, I think scientists um, quite reasonably um, can be uh, anxious about whether their ideas will either be misrepresented or reduced to a point that um, they seem inaccurate. Sure, because there is a long history of that actually happening. And most right. scientists who have that reticence have it because of a personal experience. Right, they might have been burned somehow mm-hmm. or other. Yeah. So, um, so my hat's off to, um, you know, any researchers who are willing to take the time to talk with journalists about things to help them understand and 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 uh, you know to this to the scientists and communicators who are listening. One one sort of tip I have is mm-hmm. is for the non scientist communicator like me is to ask the scientist um what sort of um metaphor uh, or analogy she would use to describe whatever it is that that her work is about absolutely i think that's you hit the nail on the head right there i've talked to many many journalists reporters and science communicators both who come from a journalistic background and who come from a science background and then found journalism Analogy is number one, probably the fastest and most effective way for somebody to understand something complicated. Like, you know, I tried it once. I'm not sure how successful I was when I had to write about the Higgs boson. I was like, how the fuck do you write (laughs) about the Higgs? And I remember working with a physicist. Actually, I was working with Henry Reich, who does Minute Physics on YouTube. And he sat with me, oh my gosh, so sweet, for like two hours on Skype. And I was going through, okay, this is my analogy. It's a bomb squad. They're looking for a bomb, but it exploded and they can't find all the parts. And I'm going through and I'd be like, so this is like the bosons. Don't use the word boson. Here you'd want to use fermion. That's a different Uh, type of... And you just don't know. Well, that's why I... I, Partly for the sake of expediency, Mm -hmm. but partly for the sake of accuracy... I recommend asking the researcher to come up with the metaphor. Because they probably already have one. They right? already have one. And also you then as the reporter can think, okay, this, the, you know, he or she scientist gave me this metaphor. Yeah. So I'm not screwing this up. Like Totally. The, the, they're, so um, that's like a, 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 I think, a smart shortcut um, to doing a lot of science reporting. Yeah, and also I think that um, one random tip that I would give is that if you if the researcher himself or herself is not available, the main person who's like the go-to person, which is always great to be able to talk to, but like you said, a lot of them are like, fuck off, I'm busy. Talk to somebody in their lab. You know, talk to a graduate student who's dedicating their time to this. They may actually know more because they're in it. You know, they're in the thick of it. And oftentimes I do find that this younger generation um, of you know, grad students, postdocs, and and younger scientists are much more comfortable and open with the idea of science communication, and of they they see it almost as a necessity and as part of an obligation to their work. I to, think that's definitely right yeah. to open up. And there are, but don't get me wrong, there are a lot of amazing um, 
more traditional scientists who are senior much older. Researchers, yeah, senior researchers yeah. who do the same thing. But that is something that in, in the SciComm world we're working on. You know, some scientists just don't think that sharing with journalists is part of their job. And you're never going to change their minds. But there are plenty, there are a million people out there who will be willing to talk and who will have like just amazing, amazing insights. So yeah. that's so cool that you got to meet all of these. I also think that it's, it's something that we should celebrate, a journalist taking time to write a book because it's you're never going to be as in-depth when you're assigned for a newspaper or magazine. You know, there's varying levels depending on how investigative it is, how much leeway, how much time, how much money you have to be able to follow that lead. But writing a book is something that we should celebrate because you're taking a little seed and you're really putting, like you said, you took seven months off of work. You're putting your heart and soul into this and you get to deep dive and do the type of investigation you'd never be able to do for a general assignment. Yeah, I mean, the the newspaper wouldn't run a 200-page, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 85-part series on <laughs> Asher Price trying to dunk. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I had my, I had myself as a subject close at hand. So yeah. I, 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 um, I was about to sneeze. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, you know, it's like, you know, artists, uh, you know, often paint these self-portraits. Mm -hmm. And one reason they do that is because they're easy and cheap models, right? Yeah, they're well, fully accessible. And so a lot of the time spent was spent, you know, meeting with trainers, working with scientists, but also in a slightly self-involved way, writing about myself, you know. Sure, in, it's in the same reason musicians write songs about what happened to them in life. and Because also there are these universal themes that I think the only way to tap into them is to to listen to yourself. It's yeah. to, you know, we can empathize with others as much as we can, but even sort of the template for empathy is put yourself in those shoes. Try right. and see what it would feel like if it were happening to you. Right. And in the story, I should say, there's a there's like a getting at this at this empathetic thing that you're talking about there's like a shadow parallel story i tell in this about cancer because yeah. i was a, a testicular cancer survivor where i had kind of like uh you know 10 years ago now i had i coming on to 10 years i you had were been quite young right how old were yeah you? i was 26 okay yeah um you know was had noticed a uh a, a, a little lump in my left testicle and i Initially thought, eh, maybe it's a uh, you know showering, and and I thought maybe it was just a, like a a birthmark that I had never really realized was there. Mm -hmm. And then a couple weeks later, you know, you wake up with a, a an ache in your lower belly, mm. and you think, oh, what what is it? Is that thing still there? And then you know, you go off to the hospital, you get a diagnosis. Um, and so I I partly wrote about that because you know not everybody is interested in whether some dude can dunk a basketball. Um, but you know, the, 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 can the cancer story is meant to be a, a kind of, um, foil to that story, sure. a parallel in the sense that there, I also was depending on a, you know, set of scientists, doctors, mm -hmm. um, who have testicular cancer is now really among the most curable kinds of cancers you can get and about how, you know, to what extent now trying to dunk a basketball can I alter my own trajectory with my own working out and my own, you know, jumping exercises um, 
you know, as opposed to this, you know, crack team of doctors that was, sure. you know, helping me, you know, alter my trajectory, uh, you know, 10 years ago as well. And how much, you know, the, the process of trying to get past something really major, really medically major in your life, which obviously has so many implications, the medical implications, but also just the psychological implications, the familial, you know, the environmental implications, how much of that really is this strange dance between putting your, your kind of your mortality in the hands of professionals, but also trying your best to maintain some sense of control over your outcomes. You know, what can I do to, to help this along? Right. I mean, to what extent do we, uh, do we weave the fabric of our lives? Mm -hmm. To what extent is that really in our control? Yeah. Um, I mean, with the cancer thing, as I said, it's among the most curable. Uh, but if you don't get treatment, the outcome isn't good. Sure, it's among the most curable, which means you have to actually go right. through the right exactly, through the exactly, of exactly, cured. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's you know, it's it's about like you said, early detection, about not letting that thing that's nagging you keep right. nagging you, and then once you're in it, it's about yeah, I think maintaining trust and saying, you know, I'm in many ways putting myself in your hands, but I'm also going to do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. I'm going to show up. I'm going to take the medicine. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to do all those things that you're telling me as part of my treatment. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I, I mean, I, and I get a little bit into the, you know, into the science of all of that as well in terms of just, you know, what the chemo cocktail is. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's with, with tes testicular cancer, it's a, it's a, um, it's a liquid platinum that they inject into you that really, really the cancer cells don't like. Interesting. And, and also it, none of your other cells like either, <laughs> No, sure. right. Yeah. It makes you feel pretty miserable. But yeah. the, the, you know, I, I sort of muse about um, in the book about how I tried to think of myself in some ways like a superhero. That is, you're sort of... Um, coursing through your veins is liquid platinum. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and I and I actually, you know, thought again at that time of Spud Webb, the that five six, six dunker who um, was his own kind of superhero. I feel like who defied gravity in mm -hmm. some way, right? And and here I'm, uh, you know, feel like you know, you know, platinum man, you know, <laughs> impenetrable and unbreakable or something like that. So there's a kind of, you know, as I said, parallel tale that's going on there. I love that. I think, and I think that's a good, you know, a good place here with our conversation where it's really come full circle. And I think just like Spud, um, you will find that more and more, it, you probably already have, that more and more you're going to have people reaching out to you and saying like, wow, this is something I went through too, or I'm going through this right now. And you really are something of a role model for me, which um, I'm sure you never expected as <laughs> no, you set no, out to I mean, do I'm, this. I, I, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it, it, well, I, I, I just appreciate your having me on to, to talk about all this stuff. So much fun, but I can't let you go quite yet, even though you need to get to the airport. So we'll keep this last <laughs> bit short and sweet because I end every episode the same way and I, I'd be remiss if I let you leave without doing it. So at the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same two questions. I have yet to determine what I'm going to do with this. Maybe I'll like montage them out one day. But um, the questions are this. When you think about the... I'm so excited to hear your perspective too because I feel like we're always talking about the same <laughs> themes on the podcast. So this is like totally out of left field. Um, 
When you think about the future, in whatever context matters to you, whether it's your own personal future, whether it's the future of the planet, humanity, whatever, I want to know first, uh, what is the thing that sort of keeps you up the most at night? What is the thing that you're most concerned about, most worried about? But then on the flip side of that, what are you most optimistic about? What are you excited um, that the future will hold? Well, those are deep. Those I are g- great <laughs> deep questions. I mean, um, putting you on the spot here. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think <laughs> so. You know, on a personal level, certain anxieties about mortality keep me up at night. Sure. But but on a global level, I mean. Uh, especially being in Texas, you know, there are pronounced issues and now here in California, of mm-hmm. course, about water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of people moving to Texas and people are using water more efficiently than they used to. Um, but it's uh, it's going to be a dire problem. Maybe, I mean, in some ways we're seeing it already in our lifetimes, obviously, but I think long after we're gone, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be a dicey situation. Um, so I'd say, and that's something I write about a lot, is, is the politics and, and issues involving water. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's something that has to get settled out. Uh, I'd say um, the thing that I'm most optimistic about, I mean, I think at least there are smart people thinking about these issues um, and going back to water, for example, we've shown our ability that if we want, if we're willing to sacrifice or change our behavior, we can make, we can be more efficient, yeah. um, which actually can be cheaper for everybody. I mean, you know, lower bills and so on. So, mm-hmm. so um, we, you know, just like, um, you know, Dick Fosbury was able to change the way he jumped over a high bar. You know, we can change the way that we um, that we use water and energy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And we're like you said, we're already seeing it. We're seeing more kind of toilet to tap. We're seeing more really innovative ways that we can capture all of the sort of runoff that we create anyway oh, yeah. and just reuse it. You there, know, and, there's a lot more to be done. I'm yeah, sure, yeah, we. I mean. There's no reason to think just like with solar and electric vehicles and like that we're starting to see these closed loops. There's no reason to think that when it comes to water consumption that this can't be, you know, some something of a leaky but relatively closed loop. And um, I'm actually very excited for the future of that as well. As you said, living here in L.A., it's something that we um, we do look forward to and we have to be really mindful of. Well, Asher, before you go, why don't you, one more time, let everybody know the name of the book, where they can find it, and also how they can kind of be in touch, you know, if they're interested in some of the articles that you've written for the Austin American Statesman, or even um, following up on the book, so like Twitter, Facebook, whatever you're involved with. Sure, okay, yeah, uh, it's, the book is called Year of the Dunk, A Modest Defiance of Gravity, and you can get it at your local bookstore, you can get it online, Um at the usual places, and uh, and you, if you want to email me about anything, you can email me at ashergbprice at hotmail.com. Um, I'm a reporter at the Austin American Statesman, and um, and statesman.com has all you know has my news stories covering energy and the environment, and um, 
and I, it's just a pleasure to be on a show like this with you know someone who thinks so thoughtfully about science and communication. And thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. So much fun to have you. And I love how open journalists are with like contact information. <laughs> I always think it's so great. They're right, like, there's, shoot me an email. There's the Twitter thing too, right? Like at Asher Price and all that kind you of thing. People, okay, can, people can get in touch with me however they like. For sure. Okay, that's absolutely amazing, guys. Reach out to him. You said at Asher Price. That's right. Say hi. Tell him... Uh, Tell him how much you like the episode and, and that you're going to go buy his book. <clears throat> Thanks, go, guys. Go buy his book. Okay. Well, it was so much fun. Thank you again for being on. And thank you, everybody who tuned in this week and who tunes in week after week. You guys are amazing. And I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.